Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand. Blessed is our God at all times, of now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Our prayer this evening is the prayer of preparation for the celebration of the feast of the entrance of the Mother of God into the temple in Jerusalem. We celebrate it in our calendar, in the Western calendar, on the same day, the 21st of November. That day is special because the Temple of Jerusalem, the splendor of Israel, the glory of the people of God, the focal point of the river. So the temple that the Lord knew was empty, bereft of the ark, that object of veneration. However, God was not to leave his temple empty, and so he arranged for Joachim and Anna to come and make an offering of their only child, the promised daughter, that she would enter the temple of the Lord and she would be the new Ark of the Covenant and she would be the one who would be the living Ark of God himself, bearing within her flesh the Word of God incarnate. The most pure temple of our Holy Savior and the most precious and bright bridal chamber, the virgin sacred treasury of the glory of God, enters today in the temple of the Lord, bringing with her the grace of the Most Holy Spirit. Therefore, the angels of God are saying, this is the heavenly tabernacle. Through the prayers of the Most Holy Mother of God, O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Amen. Okay, last week we, we covered a lot of land, and, uh, and the more I get in the Jubilee year, I'm telling you, the deeper it gets, the more beautiful it gets, but also the more profound it is. Um, so I want to go, I want to review, I want to just be patient with me while we just hit some review points because I know there's some new faces, but also even for myself, I had to look over my notes of what we talked about last week uh, just to remember uh, what we did. And, and so I want to just very quickly, as best I can over the next few minutes, just try to, you know, get those brain cells moving and remember the blood moving in our heads and remember what we talked about. Um, we I, I began with saying that the Jubilee year is at risk, right? It's at risk because, because we have, a, unfortunately, in the church, a lack of knowledge of the Old Testament and how important it is to have that uh, solid knowledge of the Old Testament. I had a beautiful quote I didn't share with you last time, and I'll share it with you from St. Ambrose. There ought to be a concurrence of the Old and the New, as in the case of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is what he says. Let our food be knowledge of the patriarchs. Let our minds banquet in the prophetic books of the prophets. Such nourishment should our minds partake of. Okay? In other words, you've got you to gotta really drink in the Old Testament and love it and see it for all its beauty. And if, if you find yourself a little bit lost in the Old Testament, well, you've got to do something about it. Because it's there that is the touchstone, the root, if you will, of what we're doing in the church today as it is revealed to us more fully, as the veil is lifted in the New Testament. But see, when the veil is lifted in the New Testament, if you don't know that it's a veil being lifted on the Old Testament, then it looks like what Jesus is doing is kind of like, I think I said this last time, Johnny come lately, right? He's, now, now God's going to do something different. No, 
God is revealing in its fullness the seed he's already planted. But if you don't see that seed, you're not going to see the connection and the beauty. And the Jubilee is a great example of that, uh, that we have to understand the Old Testament Jubilee to understand what Jesus does in the New Testament in his ministry in order to then understand the Jubilee year that all of us were in Leviticus. What is the Jubilee year all about? You guys tell me. What's that? It's a reset. Yeah, a reset, but in what, I want, what fundamental way? Freedom. Yeah, freedom for what? Yeah, freedom from debt, yes, but it's also, yes, so freedom for people, right? Primarily slaves, those who become slaves, and? Yeah, a return to your land, a restoration, but also a freedom for the land itself. A freedom for the land is critically important when we talk about that atmosphere that we talked about. Remember the atmosphere of freedom as a necessary component or a necessary atmosphere for authentic love? As we went back to, you guys are looking at me like blank. Do you remember, what, do you remember that? Okay, so, the, so the, this, this importance of the land, huh? the place where the covenant takes place. The Sabbath day, the place where the covenant takes place. From a different perspective, perspective freedom. That place where the covenant takes place, right? Uh, so we talked about that freedom and rest and, and ultimately the Sabbath which is the context for that, that whole freedom and rest. Uh, we then moved from this, this idea of the Sabbath, um, then as a bridge to that restoration, back to the, old, uh, back to the story of creation. Right? We remember that. Um, and as I shared with you that quotation from, from Dr. Tim Gray. For Israel, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, was the sign of the covenant God made with her at the time of her exodus from Egypt. Is it warm in here? Yes. Yes. It is. Yeah. Let's get it down to about 45. <laughs> For Israel, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, was the sign of the covenant God made with her at the time of her exodus from Egypt. In addition, every seventh year was a Sabbath year, from which we get the term sabbatical a year-long sign of the covenant. After a series of seven Sabbath years, for a total of 49 years, the next year, the 50th year, was to be a year-long festival of joy, jubilation, and celebration. The 50th year was the year of the Jubilee. The Jubilee year was the Sabbath of Sabbaths of Sabbaths. You can remember that. The Sabbath of Sabbaths of Sabbaths. The covenant sign par excellence. The covenant sign par excellence. And then I shared with you that quotation from N.T. Wright. God saving his people through the Exodus was a reenactment of the history of creation. In saving Israel, God was constituting them a new creation. Again, our bridge connecting what's going on in the Exodus, the story of creation. Always have to remember that the whole of the Pentateuch, what's the Pentateuch? first five books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all of them written when? During what time period? The time period of the Exodus, right? So with the purpose of Genesis and the people it's being written to, the purpose of the creation account and the way it's described is catechetical for the people that are experiencing the Exodus. This is, uh, over the last few months, I've realized more and more how critically important that is. The Genesis and the whole creation account, but all of the Pentateuch is what I would call 
catechetical apologetics. Catechetical apologetics. It's an instruction for the people that are undergoing the exodus, that are going through this experience, to understand who God is and who they are. And it's an apologetic against what they're not, the Egyptians and the people around them, the, the, the pagans. Okay? So, um, we then, yeah, we moved into the story of creation and we talked about then God's identity as love and our identity then in His image and likeness. Um, God wants to share His life with us. And we talked about that then as it is fulfilled on the seventh day. The seventh day is the day for covenant okay, for, for the people of Israel. Uh, even, the, even the number seven has a root in the word, shared root with the word for oath or covenant. So the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and remember we're talking about the Jubilee now, the Sabbath of Sabbath of Sabbaths. If we're going to understand that, going back to the seventh day and understanding it well, the covenant day and what it means. And in a covenant, what happens? In the marriage covenant, what happens? Two become one flesh. This is exactly what is happening on the Sabbath day between God and His people. In fact, what's supposed to happen with Adam and Eve is a, is a further revealing of, in the, an incarnation, if you will, of what God wants with His people. Right? God made Adam and Eve. He made man and woman as a revelation of Himself. He made marriage as a revelation of His love. So if you want to understand God's love for His people, simply look at what He made. Because the purpose of creation is revelation. Okay? Um, and then I spoke about the, the aspect of, of loving God, of Adam and Eve and all of us called to love God. When we talk about loving God, as I quoted Cardinal Ratzinger last time, loving God means worshiping Him. Loving God means worship. When we talk about worship, it's simply a fancy word, if you will, for our love for God. When we love Him, we worship Him. Creation, as Cardinal Ratzinger says, creation moves toward the Sabbath, to the day on which man and the whole created order participate in God's rest, in His freedom. Creation, and I would add to it the Garden of Eden and the Sabbath, exists to be a place for the covenant that God wants to make with man. The goal of creation is the covenant. The love story of God and man. Right? Love is the giving of one's life to the beloved. I've said that to you how many hundreds and thousands of times. It, it, it bears repeating that much. And love requires the atmosphere of freedom. Right? There can be no coercion in love. Again, we're, we're reviewing what we talked about last time. An authentic freedom is that atmosphere in which one is free not to do whatever one wants. Authentic freedom is the freedom to do the good, to do right. And the good par excellence, the best thing we can do, is love God. Okay? Freedom is a gift of God, and it is the foundation and atmosphere of the covenant. Freedom is a necessary context for true love. He goes on in his quotation, Cardinal Ratzinger, the, the, the Sabbath is a vision of freedom. On this day, slave and master are equals. 
The hallowing of the Sabbath means precisely this, a rest from all relationships of subordination and a temporary relief from all burden of work. And there then, in this context, the covenant is a relationship. It is God's gift of Himself to man, but also man's response to God. So God giving Himself in love to man and man's response to God. Man's response to God who is good to Him is love. And love means worshiping Him. Okay, and I finished up last week then talking about our image and likeness. Uh, that Adam and Eve are made in the image and likeness of the one who gives himself to us, and therefore we are called not only to give ourselves back to God, but do as he does, right? Give ourselves in love and in service to one another. This is why Jesus could say the whole of the law, right? What we're reading in the book of Leviticus regarding Jubilee, but the whole of the law, the whole of the prophets is summed up in what? Two commandments, and they are love God and love your neighbor. Do you, see how, do you see how Jesus is bringing us back to a time in which God's revelation of Himself is not written on stone, but it's written on the heart. The difference between post-fallen Israel and the restoration which Jesus brings us back to, which is God's original plan for us. It's in this context then, as I said, that we need to understand the fall. Dependency on God is critical. For it is God who gives us His life. And this, again, from, from Spirit of the Liturgy, love is seen as dependence in the post-fallen state, and it is rejected. In its place comes autonomy and autarky. Existing for oneself and in oneself. Being a God of one's own making. Right? Rejecting our dependence upon the one who gives us life. Remember this, the, the, the serpent's words. You will be like God without Him. You will be like God on your own. And if the relationship then of Adam and Eve and creation is cut off from its source of life, from God, creation, the whole created order becomes, as I said last time, uh, as, as Father Alexander Schmemann said, um, a cosmic cemetery. Life becomes mortal life. Life becomes known by one attribute, and that is death. And this is exactly what the devil wants. To gain dominion over us. When God has dominion over us, the one thing he does with his creation, right? The king orders his creation. When God has dominion over us, what he gives to his creation is his life. But when the devil has dominion over us, he gives what is proper to the devil, and that is death. And now what is supposed to be that place of freedom and love and shared a common life, a unity found in a shared common life in God, now becomes a place which is corrupted. It is disordered. It is separated from its source of life. Instead of freedom, slavery. Instead of love, coercion. Instead of life, 
death, by an abuse of freedom, Father James Groening says, Adam plunged the entire human race into the most shameful captivity. And I, I repeated that twice to you, and I'll do it again. By an abuse of freedom, Adam plunged the entire human race into the most shameful captivity, into slavery to the devil. Do you see how slavery, coercion, is totally opposed, totally opposed, ontologically opposed to God's plan and what God wants for us? It cannot happen if there's going to be a restoration. Again, in the context of the Jubilee, St. Ephraim says the entire aim of God henceforth, from the moment of the fall, the entire aim of God has been to affect the means of Adam and with him all of humanity to return to paradise. And here he's not just talking about um, uh, uh, a location, right? He's not just talking about the garden, but what the garden represents. A return to a proper relationship with God to a restored covenant. He calls man back to him and reclaims his dominion over man. And this dominion is within the atmosphere of freedom. It must be where Adam can once again live out his dominion over creation in the image and likeness of God. Where he can live out his dominion as God lives out his dominion by giving life. And that life and that love requires the context of freedom. And then finally, I know I'm doing a lot of background work, but it's, I think it's necessary. Um, finally, if freedom is the necessary atmosphere before the fall for authentic love and a shared life, then after the fall, freedom must become forgiveness and love must become mercy. Uh, there must be a restoration of what has taken place. And to have a restoration, there must be forgiveness and mercy. There can be no coercion in our relationship with God and with each other. Freedom and forgiveness become essential to Christian, authentic Christian relationships. I want you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. While you're doing that, I'll share with you a sad, a sad story. When I was in Cleveland, I was teaching a Bible study, and, um, and uh, I t I, uh, the parish didn't have very many Bibles, and most of them they had were just New Testaments. And I asked them to turn to Matthew chapter 28, right? Matthew is the first gospel in your New Testament. And there was an older gentleman there, very nice man, and he fumbled around for a while until he finally turned to the index to find out where in the New Testament Matthew was. You know how important it is that you are learning your Bibles and you're using them regularly at home because otherwise it's just not going to be yours. It's just not going to be yours. How sad. Uh, chapter 25 of Exodus. Why are we going to Exodus chapter 25? Now we're going to see the proper context in which the Exodus takes place. So to understand now creation and what we've talked about, now as it's given back to Israel. Israel is called back to that proper relationship. And here in Exodus chapter 25, God gives Moses the instruction 
of how to build the temple or how to build the tent. Why is that important? Because the tent is going to be the new place, like Eden was, right? The tent is going to be the new place in which God and man are going to meet. And when they meet, they're going to have a shared, a common life. And look what God says. The Lord said to Moses, verse 1, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me an offspring. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> An offering from every man whose heart makes him willing, you shall receive the offering for me. And this is the offering which you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, scarlet stuff, fine twinned lin linen, uh, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for anointing oil, all uh, and for fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." This is God's desire, to dwell in our midst, to live with us, to share that relationship with us. And so we have this whole list of things that he asks people to bring, but there's something critically important that I just read to you. I kind of went over it quickly. A critical phrase. Does God want them simply to bring stuff to him so that they can build a tent? Does he really need the linen and the, and, the, and the things for the breastplate and the acacia wood? Does God need these things? No. They're all his anyways, right? He doesn't need them. There's a critical phrase here in the text. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me an offering from every man whose heart makes him willing you shall receive the offering. Do you see that? God doesn't just want stuff. God wants our hearts. God, yes, He wants us to bring the things that we've received so that we can say, yes, Lord, I know that this water is from You and I, and I, and I give it back to You as, a, as, as the only thing. Everything I have received is a gift from You. Now I'm going to live my life as a gift back to You. I'm going to be a Eucharisted person, if you will. Right? So, it's critically important as we look at what's going on in the Exodus that God's not just giving laws. God's calling man back to a relationship with Him. Everyone whose heart makes Him willing. Again, what are they going to be building? A place where Adam and God, or Israel and God, you and I and God are going to meet together. And if they're going to meet together, there must be an atmosphere of freedom for God wants to share His life with us. A sanctuary, a new place for the covenant, a place or atmosphere where once again God and man can meet face to face. And when God loves us, He gives His life to us. And when we love God, what do we call that? We call that worship. We call that worship. I'm not going to turn just for the sake of time here, but when the tent comes to its fulfillment in the time of the kings, when Solomon builds the temple, I've, I know I've spoken with you about this before and I don't have to do it again, the temple is described as covered in flowers, covered in gold. And how long did it take Solomon to build the temple? Seven Years. If you want to write it down in your notes, it's 1 Kings chapter 6, seven years. And on the seventh month, he dedicated the temple, right? Because the temple is the restoration 
of paradise on earth. Paradise is, for us, the place where we share in God's life. If worship is simply a returning to love, then worship itself in our post-fallen state, right during the time of the Exodus, assumes also the character of healing and of forgiveness. Because we are exiled from Him and from our relationship with Him. We must be called back now into that relationship and that requires healing and forgiveness. A movement now, worship becomes an action of movement from exile to the presence of God. And this really brings us to the heart of the law and to the heart of the book of Leviticus chapter 25 and the, book of, uh, and, and the instruction on the Jubilee year because it's now in this context that God gives this instruction. And I want you to see something. Don't turn to Leviticus 25 yet. So you are, we read it last time. We're going to look at it very quickly again this week. But I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 3 to realize the whole purpose of the Exodus and therefore the purpose and context in which we read the instruction on the Jubilee year is given to us here in Exodus chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 18. Verse 18. This is God speaking to Moses. And they will hearken to your voice, the people. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now we pray you, let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. What is the purpose of the Exodus? Yeah, the purpose of the Exodus is not first and foremost about getting to the Holy Land. The first primary purpose of the Exodus is worship. And to have worship, they must leave Egypt. Do you see? Slavery in Egypt pre presents the wrong context, an impossible context in which man can truly love God freely. So God must get him out of Egypt, out into the desert, a three days journey, so that he can do this thing which requires that context, that atmosphere of worship. Remember the cause of the slavery in Egypt in the first place? What was the cause of, of Israel's bondage in the first place? Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. Right? So now God's got to get them out of that context to a place where they are free to enter into a relationship with Him. Israel must be forgiven. The exodus... The exodus and the freedom it grants is that action of God's mercy and His forgiveness to His people for what the brothers had done to their brother. The exodus is God's forgiveness and invitation to freedom and therefore to worship, to a right covenant relationship with Him, to reclaim their original identity as sons, as partakers of the divine nature. This is important as we turn our attention now back to the Jubilee year. So let's turn very quickly to Leviticus 25. 
which is really given to us now in the context of all of this going on, this whole story of the Exodus and this return to our original identity. Again, remind me, because we read through it last time, remind me in, Genesis, in Leviticus 25, we get the instruction of the Sabbath of Sabbath of Sabbaths. And what is the content of it? What are they supposed to do on this Sabbath of Sabbath of Sabbaths? Yeah, to rest from, from work, right? From burden. Forgive. And? Forgive debts. Yeah, but to forgive debts in the most kind of real way, right? To say all slaves are released. There can no longer be slavery on the Sabbath of Sabbaths of Sabbaths. And the context for that is the resting of the land, right? The place where the covenant takes place, must have the atmosphere, there must be breathing, if you will, the atmosphere of freedom. But notice something. Who is it that is to en- who is supposed to enact the Jubilee? Who is it that's supposed to do the Jubilee? Is it God? Right? God grants them freedom from Egypt and from slavery. But who's to enact the Jubilee? Who's supposed to live it out? The people are supposed to live out that jubilee. Why? Because we are made in the image and likeness of God. We have been given dominion over creation. And we must live out that gift of dominion by doing what God does. And that is loving one another and giving our lives for one another. And what does that require? An atmosphere of freedom. Israel cannot hold their brother in bondage because where there is bondage, there can be no true worship of Almighty God. The very dominion which was abused by Adam and Eve in paradise, Israel is now called to restore. Do you see how central forgiveness is and authentic forgiveness and freedom for true worship. Look at Exodus. We've read through chapter 25, so we don't have to look at it. The the instruction for the Jubilee year comes to a climax at the end of chapter 25 where I finished last time. So I want to pick that up in verse uh, 55. Chapter 25, verse 55 of Leviticus. He says, You have to do all these things because for to me the people of Israel are servants. Do you see? Israel is dependent upon one and one only, and that is God who gives freedom and life. For to me, the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall make for yourselves no idols and erect no graven images. Notice immediately God says, he starts talking about worship, doesn't he? Immediately, once he's given the, con- the, the instruction for the Jubilee year, he turns to the fact that they are to have no idols. They are to worship one and one only. And notice in verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths and my reverence for my sanctuary. What happens in the sanctuary? What happens there? Don't tell me they slaughter animals. Yeah, worship. And worship means sharing God's life. It's a relationship, a covenant relationship of of love. And then, here's where it gets beautiful. If you walk in my statues 
and you observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in, your, in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and so forth. He's going to go on and say, if you follow these instructions that I'm giving you to grant freedom, to grant life, then I am going to do for you what only a son deserves, and that is to partake of my life, where there's blessing and benefit. I'm going to come all the way down to verse 9, and I'm going to come back to this toward the end tonight. And I will have regard for you. I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and, and will confirm my covenant with you. And you shall eat, and you shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my abode among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Do you see this? If you observe the Jubilee year, this is so, so critically, you know, I keep saying critically important, but each one of these steps is, 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 is critically important because we are called to now celebrate a Jubilee year. And if we're going to celebrate a Jubilee year properly, God has made a promise to us. He made a promise right here that He would be with us. He would make His dwelling among us and He would make us fruitful and multiply. We will come back to that um, toward the end of our, of our discussion this evening. If we seek the Lord's blessing, if we want to worship Him, if we want to love Him, the first step, the atmosphere in which that must take place is an atmosphere of forgiveness. And now we can look and see how this plays out very quickly in salvation history. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. You know the story. Israel comes into the Holy Land. Uh, um, Saul is called and then rejected. David is called. And event eventually Solomon is um, anointed as king. Does Solomon, with all of his wisdom, live out his calling very well? In 1 Kings, things don't get too good for Solomon. I should say they get quite bad for Solomon, right? In chapter 11 is this whole list of horrible sins, including that he married how many women? 700 wives? He worshipped Ashtoreth. How many of you have been to the Holy Land with me? Uh, you, remember, you remember the Mount of Olives? The Mount of Olives was covered. You remember we talked about this our first day there. Covered in, in, uh, in pagan uh, places of, of worship. The whole mountain was covered, okay? And there you have it right there in chapter 11. It actually says that he built these upon the Mount of Olives. And we'll come down to chapter 11, verse 26. We meet Jeroboam. You remember Jeroboam? Jeroboam is going to be the one that breaks off and forms the, he becomes king of the northern ten tribes when they reject Solomon. So here's Jeroboam introduced. And look at verse 28. The man Jeroboam was very able... And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Translate that for me, friends. What does that mean? Yeah, what they had just done to their brother, Solomon does again. Joseph had been sold into slavery, and now they, Solomon puts him right back into slavery. What do you think is going to happen? 
Is the context there for a relationship with God anymore? No. Can they stay in God's house anymore? No. Not in the context of slavery. Very soon after this text, Israel is going to be thrust, and Judah is going to be thrust out of the house of God. They cannot live in the house of God where a relationship with love is the only possible life while the people are in slavery. Not possible. They will spiral toward the exile and toward bondage. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 34. Jeremiah is right in the middle of your Bible. Um, If you find Psalms, keep going. If you find Isaiah, keep going. Jeremiah 34. This whole thing comes to a fever pitch during, during the reign of Zedekiah and during the prophecies of Jeremiah. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people of Jerusalem. I'm going to stop there for a second. Just stop stop and look at me before you keep reading because I need to describe the situation. Babylon has come in from the north. They've surrounded the holy city. The biggest army known up to that time in the history of the world marched on Jerusalem. And the people are stuck inside the walls. They're starving to death. And now Jeremiah the prophet, who's inside the walls, comes to the king... And this is what he says. The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people of Israel to make a proclamation of liberty, of freedom to them, that everyone should set free his Hebrew slave, male and females, that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. So what's going on? Solomon had enslaved the house of Joseph, and now, a few generations later, as the kings have gotten worse and worse, they've continued to enslave their brother in contradiction to... In contradiction to Leviticus 25. And so at the moment, at the moment when the worst crisis is upon them, when certain death is upon them, King Zedekiah does what no king in his right mind would do at that moment. And that he says, he says, well, I got nothing left. I might as well turn to the Lord. I might as well try the one last hope. And he releases all the slaves who he probably had on the walls guarding the, you know, guarding all the arrows coming in and everything like that, guarding the walls. He says, the whole thing's going, you're released, you're released to see if God would step in. Do you see? The king who has dominion knows that the only way they can have authentic freedom and not be conquered and taken out of the house of God is if he declares the jubilee year. And this is exactly what he does. He makes the proclamation of liberty. It's another, another uh, way of saying the proclamation of the jubilee. Huh? It's the, the, the moment of freedom. So he makes the proclamation that everyone should set free his Hebrew slave, male and female, so that no one should enslave a, brother, a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone should set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. There it is. So they could avoid slavery themselves. They obeyed and set them free. 
But afterwards, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves that they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of, bond, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of six years, each of you will set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service, but your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. Verse 16. But then you turned around and profaned my name, and when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves, and therefore, says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty of the sword. Liberty of the sword. Jerusalem will now fall. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25. We're, we're looking at it from the prophet's standpoint, from Jeremiah's standpoint. Now we can look at it from the kind of more, maybe even the more historical standpoint in 2 Kings. And something very interesting takes place in 2 Kings chapter 25. This is the chapter in which we hear about the burning of Jerusalem. Okay? The, the, the temple is burned, sacked. And they take everyone off in chains, including Jeremiah, by the way. He's taken off in chains in this exile. And notice this. Well, just, just to get a, a little bit of a context, this Nebuchadnezzar that comes in. Look at verse 7. They slew the sons of Zedekiah, right? That's the king that did this proclamation of liberty, and then, he, then they refused. Okay. And look at verse 9. He burned the house of the Lord. And verse 11, And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had been deserted to, to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Who are the poorest of the land? They're the slaves. Right? Who is supposed to enjoy the jubilee year? The slaves. So God uses the Babylonians because the people would not give freedom. He sends the Babylonians in, takes the people who were the slave masters into slavery, and forces the Jubilee year to take place in Israel. Okay? Now look, one last text in this, in this section, and that's at the end of 2 Chronicles. So keep, uh, keep going on your Bibles, First and 2 Chronicles, your next two books. Look at the very end of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. Okay, we'll just kind of pick up that, that text we were just reading in 2 Kings if, in verse 20. So he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land enjoyed its Sabbaths. Do you see that? So now the land is going to enjoy its Sabbaths for how long? For how long? For 70 years. 70 years. There was an author that I was, a scholar I was reading, and he says, if you count back, and I tried to do it, and I got close to 70, but I didn't quite get there. But if you count back the number of years all the way back to Solomon and all of the time of the kings, you'll come up to 
the addition of 70 jubilee years. Okay, 70 jubilee. If you count your, your, your sabbatical year on the seventh year and your jubilees, 70 years. So God forces a jubilee upon them. 70 years, the land becomes free, if you will, right? Where people can love God again. And he leaves the poor of the land. What is, how did 2 Kings describe those people? Did you catch that? They were the vine dressers and the plowmen. What kind of people were vine dressers and plowmen? Yeah, or gardeners, right? Farmers. What was Adam and Eve's vocation before the fall? Yeah, returning to them their proper nature and their place in which they can have freedom and they can worship God. Those people will become known as daughter Sion, the faithful one that we hear about so often, a prefigurement of the church. Okay, we're going to run out of time if I don't continue on. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah prophesies the restoration. Jeremiah is critical to understanding the work of Jesus. Jeremiah 31. For Jeremiah knows that as long as the law of God, and remember, as I said last time, the law of God is his instruction to love. Right? The whole law is, is encapsulated in loving God and loving neighbor. The law, the law is about love. And Jeremiah knows that. As long as the law is written on stone, the people will continue to fail to observe it. So what is God going to do? Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. Notice the language. Husband and wife become one flesh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now that law, and most, most properly that law of Jubilee, is no longer going to be one outside of them. When God restores all things, he is going to place in their hearts the love which they should have for God and for each other. In fact, He's going to write it and put it in flesh in the heart of Jesus Christ. Someone asked me, uh, just two weeks ago I was, in, I was in North Hollywood, and someone says, how is it that Jesus fulfills the law? I said, because Jesus is the law. The law is God's will for man. His desire that man live rightly. Jesus is the incarnation of that. When Jesus lives, He is law and fulfills the law. So now those who are baptized into Him will now have written on our hearts what Jesus has written on His. What is the law if it is not that of forgiveness, of love, and ultimately of worship? As we saw last time, and as mentioned earlier, the atmosphere of the law, the atmosphere of love, requires freedom. And freedom in our post-fallen state must be joined with forgiveness and mercy. Do you see how fundamentally important forgiveness and freedom become for an authentic relationship with God and with each other? We must learn to forgive and fundamentally 
we must reclaim the dominion which God has given us, and that dominion is a dominion of love, of filling up the created order with God's life. And in our post-fallen state, that means healing, taking what is lacking in God's life and giving it what it deserves, finding creation in its fallen state and raising it up to do what God made it to do, and that is to share its life with Him. This is the context in which we find Jesus working. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. And I hope I can do justice to share with you how, 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 how central the Jubilee is and all of what we've been talking about how central it is to Jesus' mission. As soon as Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, as soon as Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, anointed with the Holy Spirit, revealed as King, and the King is the one who is anointed, revealed as the one who has dominion over creation, immediately He goes into the desert and confronts the devil and crushes His power over us. He goes into the desert as the man-God. As God who has taken humanity to Himself. And He does with our humanity what Adam and Eve were unable to do. And that is, He confronts the devil, refuses to allow the devil to gain dominion over Him, and restores God's dominion over creation. Leaving the Jordan River, Jesus goes north, as the Gospel of Mark says, into Capernaum and the whole Sea of Galilee area. There, He will heal the, the, the demoniac. He will he heal the paralytic. He will heal um, uh, Peter's mother who is sick in bed. And leaving Capernaum, He will go back to Nazareth to His hometown and enter into the synagogue. And in the synagogue, in chapter 4, Verse, we'll start with verse 14. Verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and a report concerning Him went out through the surrounding country, and He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and He went to the synagogue as His custom was on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read, and there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, right? In the, in the Jordan. Because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to th say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus walked into that synagogue in Nazareth and proclaimed what only the king had the right to proclaim 
what Zedekiah had failed to do, what Solomon had failed to do, ultimately what Adam had failed to do, and that was to declare freedom for the oppressed, freedom from those in slavery, freedom for those in debt. And within that context of freedom, Jesus would show us the way to worship God again. Jesus' whole ministry will be based upon this reality and this context. I want you to do me a favor very quickly. If you want, you don't have to do it with me, but if you want to turn with me and count with me, John chapter 5, we can look very quickly. John chapter 5, and, there, and, th- and this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Hebrew called Bezatha, which has five porticos. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and the paralyzed. This is the story of the healing of the paralytic. And look at verse 9. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his pallet and walked. Now that day was a Sabbath day. Okay, Dibby, I want you to count with me. All right? One healing on the Sabbath day. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. We've got to go fast so I don't go too much over. My, my Monica is going to throw something at me. <laughs> and they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man of an unclean spirit, and Jesus drove out the unclean spirit. A second healing on the Sabbath. Verse 29, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. Again on the Sabbath, a third healing. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. A fourth healing on the Sabbath. John chapter 9. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 9. Sometimes I repeat those just for myself to make sure I go the right direction in the Bible. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? You know the story. Jesus is going to heal the blind man. Verse 14, verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day. A fifth healing on the Sabbath. Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Verse 10. 13.10 Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a ma- woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself, and when Jesus saw her, he called her and said, Woman, you are freed from your infirmity. How many, Bob? Six healings. Luke chapter 14. Chapter 14. Verse 1, one Sabbath, you guys getting into theme here? 
One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler who belonged to the Pharisees, they were watching him, and behold, there was a man brought before him with dropsy. There are in the Gospels seven, count them, the covenant number of union with God, seven healings on the Sabbath. And this is the very point that the Jews could not take. This is the very thing they hated. I want you to turn to one last text that I want, that I want to show you. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to look again at, at, verse, uh, look at verse 9. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his pallet and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your pallet. Okay, and we're going to continue on now to verse 16. And this was why the Jews persecuted Jesus, because he did this on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working still, and I am working. This is why the Jews sought all the more to kill him. How does the father work on the Sabbath day? How does the father work on the Sabbath day? What does God do on the Sabbath day? He blesses. He blesses. And when God blesses, what does he do? He fills it with God's life. When a thing is blessed, it is called holy. And when a thing is holy, it shares in the things of God. It shares in God's life. When God blesses something, He fills it up with God's life. He loves it. And to love requires freedom. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. When He came and declared the man who was could not walk in the Gospel of Matthew, what did He say to him? Your sins are forgiven. And when they rejected His ability to forgive sins, He said, what is easier, to forgive sins or to tell the man stand up and walk? But that you know that the Son of Man has the greater power. That you can see it in front of you that He has the power to forgive sins. I tell you, stand up and walk. All of the healings of Jesus were not so much about physical healing. Yes, He healed physically. But He healed the people so that they could walk again with God. He, he, he gave them eyes to see so that they could see the face of God again. He allowed them to speak again so that they could communicate with God again. The healings of the New Testament are not so much about physical healings as much as it is about spiritual freedom and the proclamation of liberty which Jesus has come to give us. But we cannot lose sight of the image and likeness in which we are made. Forgiveness is not only for Jesus. It begins with Jesus. It is a gift of Jesus, but it is a gift which is also given to us who are baptized into Him. Just like Adam and Eve were to exercise their dominion over creation, we must begin to live out that dominion by offering forgiveness and freedom to our brothers and sisters. And we need to see that forgiveness in its proper light as the atmosphere of an authentic relationship with God. Leave your gift at the altar, the Lord tells us. Reconcile with your brother first. Forgive your brother his offenses first. And then bring your gift to the altar. 
You notice in Luke, we didn't look at it in chapter 4, the people in Nazareth reject him because he says, I must go out to a greater audience just like the prophets did. I must go out beyond this city. I must go out beyond these people. And you must accept that mission of forgiveness which is broad and universal which Jesus has come to give us. This is the foundation of an authentic celebration of the Jubilee year. And not some vague person out there that we need to grant forgiveness to. Real people. My brother, my sister, my cousin or my aunt. Members of our community that have offended us or that we have offended. Jesus teaches us to pray Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The jubilee, as Pope Francis calls it, the jubilee of mercy. It is a jubilee in which authentic forgiveness must descend upon our church and upon our hearts. Real forgiveness. And when that happens, God promises us that He will make His dwelling among us and He will make us fruitful and multiply us. If you want the church in our community to prosper, the year before us, God has made a promise to us. He only waits for our response. Thank you very much for your attention this evening. I was just thinking, I was reminded of a talk uh, by Monsignor Pope when he said he preferred in the Our Father, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors versus trespasses. And this kind of goes along more with what you're saying about all the Jubilee. Yeah, you know, um, I, I, the, the, uh, the point is good. You know, sometimes Dr. Marshner is great with this. When Dr. Marshner translates from Latin or Greek, he's got a way of translating that just makes sense. And we sometimes have to do that. Uh, it might not be as rich of a word, and we might want to use it liturgically or something, but sometimes it's good to just kind of say, what is this really, what's it getting down to? What does it mean? And of course, the debts uh, and that slavery, I, I was, we go back to Egypt. Egypt isn't so much, and the Exodus isn't so much about freedom from Pharaoh, as freedom from the worship of false gods, right? Freedom from, slit, from sin. As I said before, um, uh, it's easier to get... I stole it from somebody. I don't know if I stole it from one of my professors in college, but it's easier to get um, Israel out of Egypt. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Than to get Egypt out of Israel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think that's in Scott Hahn's book, A Father Keeps His Promises. Um, and uh, yeah, because they, they bring with them in their hearts this attachment to the false gods, an attachment to an immoral life. And so the whole Exodus is more about the spiritual freedom that God is giving. In fact, we see this in the New Testament in the epistles. St. Paul isn't concerns himself so much about people who are in slavery, but he concerns himself with those that are in bondage to spiritual slavery. That's authentic, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing, right? Jesus comes to grant us this freedom from our real debt, right? Real debt. And here's the thing. We hold each other in debt. 
when we, for, when we refuse to forgive. We hold our brothers and sisters in debt to us. And you see how destructive that, that relationship is. It's not a relationship. How destructive it is to relationships. It's, it's, a, it's the most destructive thing and the most destructive things to communities. Communities that are supposed to be built out of love become divided against each other, right? And it infects even good members, right? People that intend well, and yet there's all of a sudden this division where there should be unity anyways. Okay, how would you reconcile the concept of forgiveness with the need to keep some kind of order in society and therefore rules, laws, and prison and things like that. Okay, Ida, I'm going to hold your question for a second because I want to I want to make sure we actually answer this and talk because I want to tie it in with what Peter was asking last week. Could you mind if I do that? Okay, so I'll come back to Ida and 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 talk about this for just a second because forgiveness is not so much is not all about a negative. We always oftentimes we think of especially uh, holy confession and things in the negative, right? Well, I I list off all the things I did wrong. Confession, I, I was reading a, a book on, on, uh, on, on um, spiritual direction a few years ago, and the, and the author has this beautiful insight of confession being not so much confessing the past, though that's part of it, not so much about that as it is confessing Christ, in whose image and likeness we're made. See, we can't really know where we stand as a result of our sins, until we know who we're supposed to be, right? It's only when we know who we're called to be that we can really know how far we've fallen, right? And so, I, and the, the reason I'm saying that is that an, an important aspect of this thing of freedom, forgiveness, and the jubilee year is not so much about the negative as it is, and that's, there's an aspect of that. Yes, we have to forgive past debts, but as a Christian to forgive past debts, we are called to love. Love forgives. This is why the sacraments forgive sins, right? You receive the Eucharist is for the healing of our soul and body. Because the Eucharist is the filling up in us of what is lacking, right? It's the filling up of God's life. We are called, and this is what Peter was asking last week, we were talking about earlier, to be, we are all called to be priests, Right? We are baptized and given this ordination as Christians, as ones who are, are christened, anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so what's that all about? And as I left last week, I said, you know, I really blew it in my answer there. And I don't even remember what I said, but I just know I didn't give you what I wanted to say. The priest fills things up with God's life. He takes bread and water and fills them with God's life. You and I are called to do that. Maybe not with bread and wine at the altar. You may not be called to preach a homily or, or to forgive sins in, in holy confession. But no less are you called to fill up the created order with God's life in a different way, but in a real way. When you come into contact with people, you as a Christian have a gift that other, other people don't have. Christ, Non-Christians don't have what you have. You are working on a whole other level, really. In a real way, you have the ability to love with God's love. And God's love is real and it's healing. It does something to the person that you come into contact with. And I, and I, I ran across this quote from St. John Chrysostom, 
where he, he makes this point, I guess people are complaining, you know, St. John Chrysostom gets up there and preach every Sunday, he gets to preach all the time, then he gets to do nothing, right? And so, so he turns to these people, he was of course a great preacher, and so he says, you have a child, don't you? You have a neighbor, you have a friend, you have a brother, you have relatives, and though publicly before the church you are not able to draw out long discourses, as he was, to these you can exhort privately. And I want you to take it not just in words, but in reality. What the priest and the clergy do in the church, you are called to do with people out there in the world. And it's real. It's real. If we would, as Christians, we would just believe that. You are called as a priest of creation to sanctify creation, to bring the gift you've received in your baptism and at the altar on Sunday to your homes, to your workplaces, to the people you meet. And not just, well, I made a good argument. Your very presence sanctifies the place where you are. If we just believed that, our light would transform the darkness of this creation, created world as we're dealing with it now. Now, I was saying, how do you reconcile the, uh, the concept of forgiveness with the need to keep some kind of uh, social order um, and therefore uh, possibly prisons and um, stuff like that? I love this question because it shows uh, a, a, the world's understanding of justice and the Christian understanding of justice. The, the, the um, definition of, classical definition of justice is, you guys know it? Thank you, my moral theology student. All right, to give to another what is his due, right? It's very simple. Justice is to give another what is his due, what is his due. From a worldly standpoint, we always think of that what is due to the person as, in, a, in a way of, of, of a scale and of vengeance, right? Well, you hurt that person, there I got to hurt you to get you back for what you did. But this is not the way Christians look at justice. Justice is to give to the person what is due to them as how they're made. They're made in the image and likeness of God. What is due to them is to be filled up and to be made the way they're supposed to be made. Any sort of, uh, what do you call it, uh, well, you know, prison type stuff, what do we call that? Punitive justice, right? Any type of punitive justice from a Christian standpoint must always be redemptive. We do not put people in prison to get them back for what they did. We put them in prison because it's the last ditch effort to bring them back to what they're supposed to be. Okay, this is why the church, capital punishment was allowed to say, this guy's gone so far, the only thing left is to scare the hell out of him and tell him, you're going to face God, you better get your life right. You better get your life filled up now because it's over with, buddy. You don't have any more chances. That's why Christian society allowed for that. Okay, so justice from a Christian perspective, and this goes back to these questions over here, is always a matter of filling up your vocation as a Christian, filling up. Your jubilee year, filling up. And if you do that, you find those that are hurting in your life, those that, are, that you have held in spiritual debt or are holding you in spiritual debt, and you forgive them and you reconcile yourself, God will live among His people again. And when God lives among His people, His people are going to be fruitful and multiply and thrive. And the church, which is under absolute spiritual attack, will win that battle. God promised us that. I'll leave you with 
The Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is. Don't turn there, just listen. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity rather than in division, right? When brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down upon the beard, upon the beard of Aaron, running down to the, to the hem of his garment. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Sion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, filling up with life forevermore. Where brothers dwell in unity, God will be with us and fill us up with his life. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for coming. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.